Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? And welcome to the first episode of our Dorchester series. The Dorchester Conference is the premier conservative conference here in Oregon, and this year it took place at Mount Hood on April 12th and 13th. Nick and I got a ton of great interviews, and we'll be releasing them periodically over the next few weeks. So without further ado, here's our first interview with American hero, Alex Skirlados. Hey listeners, our next guest is a genuine American hero. We've got Alex Skirlados here. So if you don't know that name, Alec came into international fame several years ago by stopping a terrorist attack on a train to Paris by tackling a armed gunman. Since then, he has started a movie about the event, 1517 to Paris. Almost got it. There you go. 1517 yeah. to Paris. <laughs> he, First thing that we have to ask. <laughs> we're already up. <laughs> uh, so the movie's called 1517 to Paris. Since then, he's been on Dancing with the Stars. He's been on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And most recently ran for Douglas County Commissioner. Correct. Is that right? Yes. And so little known fact is that Alec and I actually deployed together. Way me- back. Way back. Immediately yeah. before the uh, the Paris incident, we spent a good uh, three months in Fort Hood, Texas, and then yeah. seven months at uh, Bagram Airfield together. And, so. and now he's a national hero. What have you done to be a national hero? <laughs> I, got, I got a podcast. Pick up the slack. <laughs> <laughs> So, Alec, what, what's it kind of like going from anybody to uh, to international celebrity kind of overnight? What's well, that? it was definitely kind of a trip. It was, uh, I mean, I, we kind of got thrown into it. I mean, obviously, we didn't see it coming or anything like that. But um, I think the fact that all three of us kind of went through it together was a really good experience because in a way, we all kept each other humble. We've all had slip ups and things where we, you know, make fun of each other. We're just really good friends, and it's nice to kind of go through that kind of thing with someone because then you don't develop an ego. I mean, our families wouldn't allow that either. I mean, our families definitely keep us humble, too. They always like to remind us where we came from and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it really wasn't a bad experience in any way. We've had nothing but good things come out of it. So, yeah, I really can't complain. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned earlier, we've, we've already heard Alex speak today, so I'm trying to not rehash what we already talked about, but how lucky you guys got. I, and so I didn't actually realize this until until recently, the fact that he actually, the gunman fired the weapon, mm-hmm. it punctured the yeah. the round and the round didn't go off. Yeah. He then was unable to charge the, the handle. Just, I, you want to elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? So more? the first, I mean, there's a lot of coincidences that kind of put us in that time and place as far as deciding to take the train that day, switching seats with Spencer, moving train cars because the Wi-Fi was bad. Uh, and then once the actual attack happened, the terrorist accidentally dropped the magazine out of his handgun, so he only got one round off with the handgun. The AK-47, like you mentioned, he tried to shoot, but um, had a bad primer, and he wasn't able to fix the malfunction before we got to him. Um, just a lot of small coincidences that, if you add them all up together, and all happening at the same time, it's just kind of astronomical odds that we would even be in a terrorist attack in the first place. and. Right. be the ones to stop it and be able to survive in the way that we did. So you were mentioning earlier that you have kind of become a, a Second Amendment advocate because mm-hmm. of not only that incident, but then the Umqua Community College and then Spencer getting getting stabbed later. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I believe in the Second Amendment. I was in the military. 
Sure. I have a lot of guns. Um, I, uh, but I, 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 I believed in this before the terrorist attack and all that, but it just kind of reinforced, I guess, what I already believed. Uh, the terrorist had a fully automatic AK-47 and a 9mm handgun in the middle of basically a gun-free continent. So to me, that just shows that gun control doesn't work. And then after the terrorist attack, there was a shooting at my college where nine people got killed. And the college had a rule against students caring on campus. And a lot of people just assumed that it was illegal because the school made a rule against it, even though it wasn't. But as like as a result, nobody had a gun to stop the guy that day. And just a few days after that, my friend from the terrorist attack, Spencer, was and basically just got jumped in a bar and got stabbed another, I think, four or five times Jeez. on top of that and actually came closer to dying then than he did in the train attack. And before he even went out, uh, he told my little brother that he was going to go out to the bars. And he said, well, if you're going to go, take my Glock. And he said, no, I can't do that. It's California. It's illegal. And so he almost died as a result again. So to me, gun control doesn't work. And Guns do save lives because criminals are always going to be able to get knives or guns or whatever they want, and they're not going to be afraid to use them because they're already breaking the law. Yeah, I was well, going to say I'd be curious for your opinion on. So I, I mean, I lived in Texas for ten years, and my roommates in junior and senior year, we had twenty five or so guns in the house, and I, my dad and my brother still do, and so it's I'm I don't have any qualms with being armed or with people being armed. Do you think there's any value in assigning any kind of training or any kind of you know resources learning that could accompany that or do you think that you were do you think that you were better off in your in the incident that you stopped because you were trained in weapons and you kind of understood what was going on and what the terrorist had on him that maybe somebody else who didn't have that training would not have been exposed to well i mean i really don't think you should make training a requirement to own a gun or anything like that um, I mean, they're already, at least in Oregon, is training required to have a concealed carry permit. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I think that uh, just the plur- proliferation of guns. Proliferation? The, pl- yeah. Pro- proliferation. You know, how, yeah. you know how I pronounce it anyway. Um, <laughs> He's radio personality. The more, <laughs> all the words. <laughs> the, I mean, the more guns there are, the more people are going to have to interact with them and the more they're going to learn how to use them the proper way. I mean, even during the terrorist attack, I knew how to use the terrorist AK-47 because I owned one. Mm-hmm. Not because, I mean, I, I never got trained on it in the military. The only reason I knew how to use that gun was because I just happened to own one. And I think that having guns around and using guns on a regular basis and making it more of part of the culture, like in Texas, for instance, you have a lot more common sense when it comes to guns. I find that when people get their hands on a gun they've never used one before that's when it really gets dangerous you know what i mean well i so i was gonna say there's a um i've always thought that the most vociferous opposition to gun ownership or gun use comes from those who have never actually fired a gun and there's it's like a buzzfeed video or something like that Mm -hmm. but there's there was like a clip of liberals fire a gun for the first time and they (laughs) interview them beforehand and they all say you know tell me your opinions about guns and they all say they're bad they should be banned we shouldn't have them whatever and then they actually go to a range you know with an instructor and they they learn how to do it and they hit a couple of targets and whatever and then they interview them after and everybody says yeah i totally get this i totally get how this could make people safer. I totally understand why people would want to arm themselves. So this is my frustration with gun legislation is that it's a lot of times written by those same people who have never fired a gun, have never 
handled a gun. And so like I, the, the great example is this, the assault weapons ban that just recently, well, recently, several years ago came, stopped being a thing. But all it did was cosmetic issues. It, it, it outlawed things like a pistol grip or, yeah. you know, rails to, to mount things to. And like, those are not what make a gun dangerous. Those are just cosmetic things that you can add to or take away from any gun. Well, and even, I mean, even if you look at the current laws that already exist, um, a lot of them don't make sense. Like as far as an AR-15 with a pistol brace mm -hmm. versus an SBR, I mean, those things are arbitrary and you, you can't put a vertical grip on a pistol AR because then it becomes, I think, any other weapon or a firearm or something other than what it's already designated. And there's... Can I ask, you just said SBR and I don't uh, know the acronym. Short-barreled rifle. Excuse me. Thank you. Yeah. You need a form two to make one i think but anyway hmm. it's just very complicated all the small changes like you can put a vertical grip on a, on a pistol but it has to be more than 29 inches overall length there's a lot of very small arbitrary laws that go into firearm ownership even already got it so let's go back to the uh, the political side you again douglas county commissioner um you didn't you didn't win that race no. Um, <laughs> which is why <laughs> Thanks, you're here James. now. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to rub some salt in that. But um, so what decided to, uh, prompted you to, to get into politics and decide to run for office? Well, it's kind of a long story, but we're here. So um, <laughs> we got the time. <laughs> I met uh, State Senator Dallas Hurd on a plane about, I guess, more like two and a half years ago now, three years ago, only about six months after the terrorist attack. His wife recognized me. We introduced ourselves. Uh, we got to talking about politics and he, you know, mentioned, you know, maybe you should get involved someday. And I said, sure, got his number. And <clears throat> about maybe a year or two, or year, year and a half later, I heard about the commissioner position coming open. We kind of discussed running for it and he more or less talked me into it. And uh, the more research I did, the more upset I got about a lot of the issues, specifically in southwestern Oregon with mm -hmm. the timber laws the way they are and kind of how we've been getting the shaft lately ever since early 90s and that's kind of the main thing that i wanted to change because those laws and the timber policy of oregon has a lot of profound effects on people's everyday lives as far as employment and as far as the counties receiving money and being able to fund schools and things like that and to me it's just disgusting that they can ruin an entire region's way of life just by one law that again they passed not really fully understanding kind of like the gun issue right so i've got a little bit of connection to southern oregon my parents live in grants pass and of course when i was in the national guard our, our headquarters was in ashland it, it doesn't really occur to you if you live in portland that there are people in coastal towns there are people in the, in the southwest of the state that are entire towns living in poverty. I remember um, there was a detachment in Coos Bay. I remember going out there and even the even the guys we were drilling with were half of them were unemployed. Like their only source of income was their one weekend a month they got from from drill. And because there's just there's just not there were no jobs in Coos Bay. That that whole that whole region was dependent on the timber industry and that all just kind of went away. Well absolutely. I mean all those towns the only reason they exist is for timber. Mm -hmm. So if you take timber away Either people have to move or they stay there and more or less are unemployed. So, so can I just ask as a guy from who's not originally from Oregon, 
is it a is it a like an environmental thing that says you can't you know sell as many trees or is it regulatory things that kind of constrains the amount of business that can get done or like what are the what are the issues that have come up that surround timber that kind of constrain the economic growth of southern Oregon? It's basically environmental. This kind of might bore people that you know don't really care about the issue. We, or we had a from 40, Oregon. We had a forty five minute episode on PERS. So <laughs> anybody who is bored is long gone. Well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> basically in the uh i think it was the early 30s they the federal government made an agreement with the state of Oregon since the federal government seized a lot of these lands that were meant to be private they came to the agreement that hey we'll log them between 500 million and 1.2 billion board feet and we'll give the counties a percentage of the timber receipts and that was the agreement for i think about 70 years until i believe it was 91 or 92 when clinton use the Endangered Species Act to basically throw that entire agreement away that we've been operating under for 70 years due to the spotted owl, of course. He threw that whole agreement out and instead cut it down to about, I think we had the lowest, about 160 million board feet a year harvested and then money given to the counties. And so keep in mind that these counties in southwestern Oregon especially their main source of revenue is timber receipts because, as at least in Douglas County, where I'm from, 60% of the county is owned by the federal government. Hmm. So they're not getting income from people paying property taxes. They get their main source of income is timber receipts. So when you take that away, you have basically 40% that's privately owned paying for 100% of the services. So it's just not sustainable. You could cut almost everything and it still would not be sustainable. Hmm. So they either need to privatize that land or go back to giving the counties timber receipts and then, of course, employing people in those counties to go and cut mm-hmm. the timber. So it's kind of a two-edged sword. It screws over the counties and it screws over all the people that had jobs in the timber industry. Well, and I'm sure, you know, Nick putting on his economics hat, there's a supply and demand. If you're cutting by around a tenth of what the of what the output was, you've now driven up the, the prices of what, you know, paper or whatever all the outcomes were, whatever the outputs were of that wood. Well, not necessarily because now we just import from Canada. So now all oh. of our jobs are going to Canada and our money is being <laughs> exported up to Canada. So it's so. less that we care about the spotted owl and more that we care about American spotted exactly. owls. If you're a spotted owl in Canada, you can, <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> well, and it's just, I mean, it's frankly, it's just putting owls before people i mean mm-hmm. the the forests were healthier back when we were logging and that's the, the real disgusting thing that most people don't realize i mean these forest fires are directly correlated to the lack of timber mm-hmm. harvest because basically we have too many trees and we have overgrowth and as a result we can't control all these forest fires and it's burning healthy timber and overgrown timber all in the same private and blm timber all mm-hmm. burning up in this the same batch i guess the same forest fires even though I think it's over 90% of all forest fires are started on federal land that they're mm-hmm. not harvesting on. So, I mean, it just goes to show you that yeah. it's healthier. Forest management. Is yeah, a, forest management is a good thing. Yeah. I, I remember mean, last summer I went, spent some time down in the in the forest in that area. And just crazy. You walk through the underbrush. And so from the top, it looks like it's all healthy forest. But as soon as you get below that, that canopy, it is a tinderbox. It mm-hmm. is just you're stepping on crunchy dry I, I can i can see you drop a match in there and it's just going to go up it's it's no wonder we have all these all these forest fires in in oregon well part of the i mean part of the problem too is that we we planted a lot of these trees expecting to harvest them in 25 30 35 years mm-hmm. and so we i guess more or less over planted more than the natural growth rate 
or how, you know, dense the trees are. So now we have these huge, you know, one, two foot wide trees growing, you know, six inches apart. And like you said, a lot of undergrowth and brush all over the place. A healthy forest should almost look like a park. I mean, the branches Mm -hmm. should be so high off the ground that you could start a fire on the ground and it won't even touch the trees. And that's typically what happens. Sure. In a healthy forest. Yeah, yeah. So you and I met sort of, we were never like buddies in the National Guard, but uh, <laughs> you were an officer. Did, we, we did deploy. Yeah. That's that's true. Officers enlisted, kind of didn't didn't talk a lot. But um, so what what prompted you to join the National Guard? I know that uh, Spencer joined the the Air Force. Why the National Guard? Well, honestly, it was just something I've I've always wanted to do something in the military, and. I guess I just didn't want the commitment of active duty. <laughs> so <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> National Guard seemed like a good compromise and I was going to college at the time. So I knew I could use the National Guard as benefits and I still got to do everything that I wanted to do in the National Guard. I still got to be in a sniper section, go to sniper school and do all the cool stuff that I joined the military for without selling my soul, so to speak. I mean, sure. Still had to go to Afghanistan and do all that, but yeah, yeah it was not, it was not a bad experience for me. I, I got to do both. I started out active duty, did five years of that, mm-hmm. and then came back to the National Guard for three, two years of just drilling, and then the one we spent in Afghanistan. And I, I think the National Guard is great. I think, I mean, obviously it wasn't for me, it wasn't for you, we're we're both out now, but um, as far as experience and as far as just the benefits you get, a uh, little plug for the National Guard, if you guys want to sponsor <laughs> us, <laughs> we need sponsors. Um but I, I, I really do think it's a it's a great opportunity for, for anybody who's, you know, not really sure what to do with their life or just looking for a little extra help to get through college. Great program. Uh, so anyway, you starred in a movie. Yes. Fifteen seventeen to Paris. Uh, you're, you're the actress who played your mom is, is Pam from The Office. Yep. Jenna Fisher. Jenna Fisher. Um, Her real name. Yes. <laughs> Your, uh, you, <laughs> I don't even bother to look at her real name. I, I know her real name. I was just, she's anyway. a great Instagram follower. She makes bread all the time. She My does. wife loves Jenna Fisher. Does she? Anyway, Jenna Fisher, whatever. And, uh, I don't think you had any scenes with him, but the PE coach is Buster from Arrested Development. Ed, ha- Ed Hales, who probably yeah, also that, has right? a name. I yeah, know. Yeah. It's yeah. a podcast. Who knows who's listening? I'll talk about their Not name. Jenna Fisher and Ed Hales. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're getting a little off topic. And then you got Clint Eastwood, of, of course. Clint Eastwood. What was it like interacting with all those, all those stars and just kind of being a regular guy rubbing elbows with Hollywood elite? Well, it was really cool. I mean, they treated us like A-list celebrities for like three months. <laughs> nice. I mean, we flew on private jets, stayed in nice hotels. It was fantastic. I understand why people want to be celebrities now. But um <laughs> That's it, why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was I mean it was such a great experience. It was a lot of fun. They're all really, really nice people. Clint Eastwood is an absolute legend. Everything you hear about him is true. He's just the coolest dude. He's a big Second Amendment guy as well. Yeah, he is. Uh but I mean just all around, just a Really, really nice dude. I've got a couple stories if we got time. Go for it. On my Clint Eastwood stories. So the first one, probably my favorite one, is we were in the gym in Venice. I mean, this is like authentic, like Venice. Like we had to take a boat to go to the gym. We start working out, and Spencer and I are just kind of you know talking about how like how many dips we could do. Spencer's like, oh, I can do ten dips. I'm like, oh, I can do twenty five. And Clint Eastwood walks up and overhears us, and he's like. 
25. When I was 75, I could do 25. <laughs> so I'm like, well, let's see, get up there. Let's see how many you can do. <laughs> and so this, he was 87 at the time and he did 10 body weight dips. Wow. Wow. At 87 years old. And that was I, amazing. I don't think I could do 10. I, was, body I weight couldn't dips. do 10 right now. That's, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's a legend. Just super funny, super down to earth, but still kind of a badass. So <laughs> that's awesome. So uh, somebody mentioned earlier, if you uh, continue your, your political career, if that is something you choose to do, you going to give him a call? I don't know. I, <laughs> if, you got his number? <laughs> if I run for office, he actually doesn't have a cell phone. Oh, <laughs> um, but if I run for office or do something like that, I'm probably going to have to call on every favor I can from everybody. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'll be hearing from a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not putting the spot there, but. Clint, if you're listening, and we don't have a phone for you, but well, and he gave Mitt Romney's, uh, he gave the keynote speech at the RNC in 2012. So I mean, like he 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 does politics stuff. He can come out to Douglas County. I don't know between movies and body dips, <laughs> the other things that yeah. he occupies his time with. So I, I'd be curious to know if for for someone who is a hero, and I think that that word has a lot of different definitions, but I think for somebody who is a hero, do you think that the the action or the career or the thing whatever it was in that person's life that made him a hero do you think that that is a you know that's something that other people can kind of hold up and live up to or do you think that that person has a responsibility to continue to live and work and do things in such a way to continue to set an example i mean for you now knowing that you've got the following that you do you've been in movies you know a no famous people or whatever. Do you think that there is a, a further obligation to toward to service? I don't necessarily know that I'd call it an obligation because I mean, all these I've met a lot of people that have done a lot cooler things than me. And um, frankly, it's just, it's not, it doesn't define the person, you know? Hmm. I mean, it, it's definitely a little bit of added pressure to know that, you know, kids look up to you now, you know, you don't want to disappoint, you know, people that believe in you or that are fans of you or whatever. It's definitely added pressure, but I wouldn't necessarily call it an obligation because there are, I mean, all these guys that, you know, especially guys that have gotten the Medal of Honor and things like that. I mean, they're all just regular people. They, I mean, even in our case, we're just regular guys. We still yeah. use the same jokes that probably a lot of people <laughs> would define as politically incorrect. You know, we still, well, I, I won't get into it, but we, we're still very human. <laughs> I promise you that. So I don't necessarily believe that there's an obligation, but I think it's just kind of up to the person. You know, you can either try to use the platform you've been given for greater good and try to influence others to maybe do the same thing or mm -hmm. whatever, or you can just let the one deed stand on its own, go live your life and not worry about what everybody else thinks. So, okay. So I always used to hate it. So walking around in uniform, especially on active duty, you get that a lot. There's just random civilians or whoever coming up and thank you for your service, you know, I used to hate that because I never knew how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. Thank it, you both for your service. Well, <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> but see, that's that's the thing. What do you? How do you respond to that? You say, "I mean, thank you" is really the only thing you can do. But that's then it's awkward because there's no follow up. It's like, so thank you for your service. Thank you. Period. That like you're well. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so um, I I would imagine that you get that times ten now that you've kind of been through this situation. Um, what, what are your thoughts on re people recognizing you running into, do, do, does that happen to you a lot? And yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it sounds kind of funny, but when somebody 
says thank you for your service. I mean, you know, usually I just say, you know, thank you or mm-hmm. just, you know, you know, just doing what we had to do to survive, you know, which is true. But what I want to say is, do you know how many people have done a lot more than I have? You know, I mean, there's guys like, I mean, like the guys that have won Medal of Honor, missing limbs, or I know a guy who was in SEAL Team 6, then left the Navy to join uh, the Army to get into Delta Force, and then he did all sorts of other stuff afterwards. I mean, there's some really crazy, badass people out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people are thanking me for my service just because I didn't want to die on a train in Europe, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> It's all, I guess it's all perspective, but that's, yeah, that's kind of what I want to. I'm always, (laughs) I'm always thankful that the war on terror was my war, you know, so I deployed three times and I think throughout the entirety of those three deployments, 32 months overseas, we had one casualty, two, maybe Mm -hmm. two people get killed in my, in my battalion. I think we had more suicides than we had KIAs. It It was incredible. And compare that to other wars for instance, Vietnam, where mm-hmm. companies are getting 50% casualties, you know, people, half your friends die in one battle. And then you, you got to get on a plane, go back or get get onto a helicopter and, and uh, do it all over again. And my biggest, the thing that I had to deal with the most personally was depression because I, you're just doing 12 hours a day, seven days a week with no end in sight. And again, that's, that's, that's it. You know, I, I occasionally was maybe five or six times afraid for my life, but even that was nothing compared to watching people left and right of you just get, get slaughtered. We're kind of like the snowflake generation of veterans, (laughs) I guess, you know, got Vietnam vets, you know, right. Half their company got slaughtered, then they come home and get spit on. And then, you know, you're like an airplane mechanic in kuwait and you come back and everybody's <laughs> giving you flowers and thanking you for your service so you know it is what yeah. it is it's <laughs> another another story that i that i like to tell is uh one time we were at drill we were at camp Raylia up in that's in uh northwest on the coast northwest the coast <laughs> yeah. people know where you can google camp Raylia and find <laughs> anyway um so for whatever reason i drove up in uniform and forgot a shirt a civilian shirt. And so the officers like to go out and have dinner or something. So usually it's Friday nights through Saturday, Sunday morning. And so Friday night we would, you know, go out for drinks or whatever. And you can't go out in your army shirt. So I stopped by, drove myself to the local Goodwill and just picked up a polo that I just to, to wear. And this poor soldier. I know. Goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it. So I, the lady, the lady behind me, this is like 2 PM on a Friday. Uh, the lady behind me is like, oh, let me buy that for you. And she was insistent. She wanted to buy this polo for me. It's like a $7 shirt. And here I am. I'm in grad school for an MBA. I have... You let a homeless person buy you a polo. <laughs> she, yeah, exactly. Like this this lady is shopping at Goodwill on, at 2 p.m. on a Friday. Here I am, a grad student. I've got a job lined up at Intel. Like I am, I'm, I don't need this lady's help. But it was like, it was one of those things like it meant, I felt it meant more to her to buy me the shirt than it did for me to not accept it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it was really weird. I don't know. It kind of clicked for me that, you know, sometimes you just got to take one for the, take one for the team. And <laughs> <laughs> let, let people, let people appreciate what you did and not, not go through that. Cause I don't know, even our deployment, we were basically, you know, glorified security guards. 
think you said that in the movie. I did. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> James watched it last night. Yeah, so it's all true. the quotes are just right there. I had to get caught up because I knew Alec was going to be here. Actually, I haven't seen it. I feel like a schmuck. You should have called me. I could have. Sorry, I should have invited you over. Let's. Well, I'll go out. I'll go and I'll buy it. We'll, I'll boost your numbers a little bit there. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if apart from politics, what is it you're you're looking at? You know, next or what do you, what do you got irons in the fire these days? Uh, I mean, kind of a lot of things are all like very different directions. I've looked at you know, kind of working in for the timber industry or something like that to kind of I guess work with public relations and you know show people that a working forest is a healthier forest at least healthier than what we have now where they it all just burns every summer mm-hmm. i've looked at working in the firearms industry um working law enforcement even some capacity instructing people as far as like anti-active shooter things or you know even law enforcement how to deal with that kind of situation and of course politics so it's all kind of very different categories. Yeah, I haven't made up my mind yet, so we'll see what happens. I don't know. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. Have a lot of options and haven't haven't been able to decide rather than the alternative. I just want a job, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to do PR for a podcast, yeah. I, I know one. That, I was uh, going to say, we can use the help. <laughs> I will pay you what the founders are getting paid. So. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I think we're we are about out of time. So, Alec, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We'll uh, hit you up next time. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.